Welcome investors to the Absolute Return Podcast, your source for stock market analysis, global macro musings, and hedge fund investment strategies. Your hosts, Julian Klamotko and Michael Kesslering, aim to bring you the knowledge and analysis you need to become a more intelligent and wealthier investor. This episode is brought to you by Accelerate Financial Technologies. Accelerate, because performance matters. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. Hey, welcome podcast listeners to the show. On today's podcast, we welcome special guest, Nir CEO, Anil Matthews. Nir is a global SaaS leader in privacy-led data intelligence on people, places, and products. On the show, Anil discusses whether entrepreneurs are born or made, characteristics that make enterprise software attractive for entrepreneurs, Nir's data sets and why they're useful to clients, the number one most important attribute for an entrepreneur to have, and more. So with no further ado, here's our discussion on enterprise software with Nir, CEO, Anil Matthews. Welcoming Anil to the show from Nir. Anil, how are you doing today? Good. It's a pleasure having you. Uh, you know, pleasure um, speaking to you, yeah. It's great to have you on the show. Excited to get into all things Nir. But prior to that, you've spent the past 22 years as a serial entrepreneur. So to start... Basic question that many people discuss, are entrepreneurs born or made, in your opinion? <laughs> That's a very interesting question. I believe they're, they're both born and made. I've met many successful entrepreneurs who are born to do this, and many successful entrepreneurs who are made uh, as well. And I think it's uh, a lot of it boils down to the choices you, uh, you make. Um, kind of how you implement the learnings in your life to, you know, being an entrepreneur. Because, you know, different businesses might need different types of skills and, and levels of um, persistence. But I think everything boils down to the ability to take risks and garner uh, a great team around you. Uh, and I think, um, you know, so, so the answer to your question would be I've seen both. Uh, you know, you can, you know, if you're not born to do this, you can basically be made to do this as well. Certainly a hotly debated topic, but that makes a lot of sense. Now, prior to founding Near, you had a number of other ventures over more than a decade. Can you walk us through some of these startups that you launched prior to founding Near? Yeah, um, I've been an entrepreneur for most of my life, I would say. I started my first company in 99, and, um, and, and then, you know, this is my third company by now. But all of these companies were deeply rooted in tech, so that was a that was a common theme. And um, you know, myself, I, I I like to do products, and I'm I'm, I'm a tech guy. So everything that I created, um, I use my strengths. And of course, the first one is the most difficult because you have a lot of things to learn. You need to figure out a lot of ways on how not to do things. But eventually, I think by the time you're um, on your third stint you know a lot on what mistakes might be costly, uh, what is probably the right approach. And that's why I think um, when I started Near in 2012, by then, you know, we uh, we had a template on how to do this. And, and I think that's what, that's what the success speaks for itself. And specifically, what has kept you coming back to the enterprise software sector? What, what makes that sector or vertical special in your, in your mind? I think it's also like like I mentioned, it was uh, a lot of learnings I had personally was around this this sector. And for um, for us, I think the value that we could create as a team was uh, a bunch of specialists who who 
we're all from the similar industry, but uh, knew what challenges enterprises are facing. And, and we always believe that we have a, a better solution than what they're doing internally today to sort of address some of those challenges. Now, as an entrepreneur in the enterprise software sector, and you founded a number of startups focused in this space. What was your background, just so our listeners know? Like, were you a programmer? Were you a technical founder? Were you on the, you know, on the? Yeah, I mean, side? I've been my first company. I'm, I'm by education. I'm an engineer, um, electrical engineer. But uh, my first company, you know, I was um, doing a little bit of programming. So I started, you know, coding myself. Uh, but then slowly moved into more. Uh, sales-oriented function, and eventually sort of managing things. So that was my progression. But, uh, but, but I think understanding coding and technology helped me work with other technologists and, and sort of design things in a way that was more efficient and, and sort of I could contribute to uh, each and every product. Even today, I contribute to all the products that we make. So that, um, that really helped, yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, I'm also an electrical engineer by training, not by vocation, because I've always been focused on the business and finance side. But I digress. Focusing on Near, after you've had these other startups, you said you founded the company in 2012. Where did the idea come from and what were you trying to accomplish? Yeah, I think uh, this was when I was out of my second company. You know, I was trying to create a completely different offering. It was uh, I thought uh, I'll take a stab at, you know, creating a consumer-focused app. But then I needed, for, for, to, to build that app successfully, I needed a service that could be an API or could be, uh, you know, sort of a, a platform that I could latch into, which would give me, I would say, people's, you know, trends around people's moment or, or footfall trends, as you would say. But I couldn't find that at that time. This is 2012, late, you know, 2011. I couldn't find that. And so we said, okay, if we create a concept um, around this, uh, which we could use for ourselves, but it could be more useful for others as well. And eventually, I sort of let go of the original idea and, and realized that this could be a lot more powerful because a lot of other uh, you know, brands and enterprises might find this useful. So we completely changed uh, and pivoted to sort of creating this platform instead of the app itself. That's how the whole thing works. And now, a word from our sponsor, Accelerate, one of Canada's most innovative and fastest-growing alternative investment solution providers, with a suite of institutional-caliber alternative ETFs for investors seeking diversification and long-term performance. The Accelerate Arbitrage Fund, symbol ARB on the TSX, is the world's first SPAC-focused ETF, with a diversified portfolio of SPAC and merger arbitrage opportunities in an easy-to-use, low-cost ETF. The Accelerate Arbitrage Fund ETF trades under the symbol ARB on the Toronto Stock Exchange. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. And if we rewind 10 years ago, 2012, you talk about consumer apps and mobile device data. That whole era was really coming just to fruition then with the iPhone and the App Store was really in its uh, first few years there. So that makes a lot of sense. Digging into Near's business model, you have data and da- data intelligence solutions. I was wondering, how do these help businesses? Like, what would your typical uh, customer do with it? Yeah, I think just to, to explain that a little better, if I take a step back, so what we do is today, we have 
you know, in simple terms, people's behavior around places. So it's a, it's a, a massive data universe that we own and operate, which um, allows us in a privacy compliant way to look at this, um, you know, people's moment um, across places and, and which we then use to understand what could be their behavior, not just in the physical world, but in the digital world as well. And all this is stitched and connected via unified IDs. So, so we have around 1.6 billion active user IDs at, a, at any given month, and um, which means it's those many unique IDs that we have in our system. And each ID would have, it won't have any personally identifiable information. So we won't know who this person is, but it will have signals. Again, a lot of the signals are consent-based signals from the digital world in terms of what apps this user could be using, what websites they might be visiting, what devices they carry, and so on. But also physical world attributes in terms of what is a brand preference in the real world. How far do they go to get groceries or gas? Sort of, you know, where do they typically, which area do they live in and, and where do they go for work and all these aspects. So this allows us to provide this information, this intelligence as we call it, to brands and enterprises who need to understand their consumer journey. Because especially what has happened is during the pandemic and post-pandemic, consumer journey has completely changed. And a lot of this understanding that brands had about this consumer journey and, and sort of their behavior is completely, you know, I would say gone to a toss. And now they need to relook at, okay, so how do I engage with my consumers or my, my customers? And, and we help them with that. Um, so we we take our platform, they license our platform, and they look at, okay, I know a few things about my customer or my consumer, depending on the industry, but I need to know a little bit more now, what do they do when they walk out of my door? Where do they go? How many times do they go to a competitor? Where do they come from? How much time do they spend there? And all these questions that they want answered, which uh, we provide to them. Now, in terms of providing your clients with these data sets that these vast data sets that you're assembling how are they useful to those clients like what uh specific data i don't know if you can provide insights into specific use cases Let, let, let me take an example so maybe you know probably help you answer your question one of our uh customer is uh one of the largest um media companies out there now they have, you know, they typically work with uh, large websites and apps, which is very informational or entertaining in nature. So before we came into picture, they have this large websites where you would go to read news about, you know, fashion or news about celebrities and things like that, or information, an article about this. But the challenge they faced is you're not logging in to read these things. So they don't know who you are. And you when you move from their website A to their website B, they, they never had an idea that you're the same user because these both are disconnected. And uh, which means, and their key revenue model was to basically monetize this data itself. So they would create profiles of users based on their digital world interactions, so what you're reading, what you're liking, what you're watching. And they would create profiles of users which they would then monetize via advertisements. The challenge with this was that because it is so disconnected, they had limited ability to sort of wrangle with this data. Also, they're not depreciating themselves in the market. Since Nia came into picture, the first thing we did is we used our patented technology to connect this siloed properties together 
and connect all of them to the single unique key that I just discussed about earlier. So now that it's connected to single unique key, when you hop from website A to B to you know C, D, E, F, they would know that you're the same user. And most importantly, we would now be able to tell them this user's not only digital world behavior, but physical world, like I was telling. So all of a sudden, as an example, before us, they were creating buckets of people's behavior. Let's say it's let's say it's called auto enthusiast, based on you read something about a car in one of their magazine, uh, online magazine, or you liked watched a video. And this bucket is what they would sell to auto companies. But since we came into picture now, because we can tell, Nier can tell them how many of these their users were seen in an, in an actual auto dealership, they can take that data to the same auto company and tell them now we have a higher intent to purchase. These users who are seen in the real dealership have a higher intent to purchase. Because of that, you need to pay us more. And they were paying them 30% more. So typically, in effect, what happened is you're able to actually increase your data yield for using our technology and our property without the need of actually increasing the user base itself. And that is a big, big impact, as an example, I can tell you, of, of using a technology. That makes a lot of sense in terms of the value proposition to your customers. Now, in terms of your data intelligence solutions, could you tell us a bit about the market, total addressable market in terms of size and also yeah. what is out there in terms of competition? Yeah, I think um, just to address to your sort of uh, you know, later, later question, when you if, you, if you draw a quadrant, and on one axis, if you look at companies that are local to global, mm-hmm. and other axis, you look at companies that are point solutions to, let's say, aggregators to full stack solution, Nia would sit on the top. Because we don't have a competition that is truly global in nature, providing full stack offering uh, that we provide. Because... Uh, and, and and by full stack, what I mean is basically what they're allowing is looking at enterprises who's big or small sitting on first party data, but they're not able to derive any meaningful value out of this. And there are three key reasons for that based on all our uh, expertise and, and experience. And, and, and the first reason is that most of these enterprises, the data is in silos, like I explained about this example. But even if you're a, a retailer, you know, your data is in, you know, there's some data which is an app, there's some CRM data, there's some POS data. So data is all over different formats, stored differently and, and things like that. So that's the first challenge. The second challenge is that most of this data is of poor quality. It's half-baked. There's missing information, missing addresses, you know, missing understanding of the consumers. And the third, which we all think is a trivial issue, but it isn't, is most of these enterprises also don't have the right data skills because they're not data companies themselves. And so when we come into picture near, we're trying to address these challenges that enterprises are facing on how do we you maximize value out of this data. So we are able to provide a full stack solution which allows them to stitch this silo data, enrich it with deeper understanding from both the physical and the digital world, derive intelligence out of it in, in, in terms of deeper insights and analytics, and help them act and measure this data's efficacy, all in a single hosted platform. So that full stackness, now coming to your question about competition, that full stack uh, offering at a global scale doesn't exist. What we come across is either point solutions, some of them being one of the piece that I just mentioned, or 
companies which is very local in nature, just doing it in, you know, let's say Australia, but not in Singapore, but being in Singapore, but not in UK. And I think so one of the reason companies or customers like working with us is because we are very global in nature that allows them, them being global to work with us across different uh, regions and, and have a single vendor. So they, they like that aspect as well. So that's where, where we stand. The, the total TAM for, for what we offer is around 23 billion, which is because of the nature of uh, you know, where we are today in terms of competition. We believe it's uh, highly underpenetrated and our stone. Now, in terms of the application of your technology, would you say that in the primary use would be lead generation for your customers to get for their sales process? So, so there are there are two products. One of which I touched upon, and the other one. So basically, because if you, if you remember what I had just mentioned earlier in, in our call, is that we are trying to look at people's behavior around places, yeah. which means from a platform perspective, the platform is a very generic platform which does this at a large scale, day in day out. You can drive different kinds of you know uses and, and create different products out of it. So we have created two core products. One which has a lens, uh, which is looking at things from a lens of people and the other one, which is looking at uh, things from a lens of places. So you can actually, one of our product, which is specially designed for, for insights around places is used by um, some of the largest restaurants in the world, restaurant chains in the world, real estate companies, uh, retailers in the world to look at where to open the next door because we want to understand where is the catchment area of our, um, our customers? How are competitions faring? Um, if I open a store here, how will the people moment be? Where will they come from? Where will they go after? So, so this is all this they're able to decide using our data from a place perspective. So supply chain optimization, route planning, site selection. These are the use cases of this product, which is designed based on uh, uh, you know places. This, the same, uh, I, would, I would take a different cut of the same data and look at things from a people's perspective. That is what I just described to you in the earlier use case about how we are able to sort of provide, you know, sort of insights on people's movement uh, around the physical world and enhance this uh, data yield for our customer. So you could look at both ways. So that's why we simplify it and call ourselves as a data intelligence platform. Because what we're typically doing is we're looking at how do we assimilate all this data together, derive intelligence, and provide this in a platform on a SaaS basis to our customers. This podcast is brought to you by Accelerate, one of Canada's leading alternative investment solution providers. Do you want to hedge your investment portfolio and protect your nest egg from significant drawdowns? Look no further than the Accelerate Absolute Return Hedge Fund, a long-short equity ETF that trades under the ticker symbol HEDGE, H-D-G-E, on the TSX. HEDGE, your uncorrelated portfolio diversifier. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. Thanks for that. It, it's, it's quite clear the, uh, the value proposition for, for your customers uh, that use the platform. What what would you say is the the benefit for end consumers um, for with with your product? So so typically, I mean, what we're doing is we are not directly you know sort of connected to the consumers because all our data sources are coming from partners, which could be telcos in some countries, which are Wi-Fi providers in some other regions, but majorly app data. But that's 
through partners, not directly, you know, by owning any app or 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 any sort of SDK setup. This means that um, all this data is 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 first consensual, uh, so the consent is obtained by our partners on our behalf, but also that the value that they get that they're receiving on the other side is if it's an app ecosystem, the app itself, right, where the app is able to provide their services free because they're able to monetize the data and not rely heavily on on ads or any other mechanism or, or subscription mechanism, which they need to use to sort of uh, generate revenues. And similarly for other uh, you know ecosystems that I just described. So as the business has grown over the past decade, you're now reaching a major milestone, which is going public. And this going public transaction includes a $95 million pipe financing, certainly in a pretty tough market for you know, startups, hyper-growth companies going public. I was wondering, why did you choose to go public? And what is the use of proceeds with the capital raise that you're doing with this transaction? Sure. So, so one is, you know, this is, we look at going public as a, as a financing event, not as an exit event. And we have raised around $134 million till date from some marquee investors like Sequoia Capital and JP Morgan's of the world, we where we are looking at our next phase, you know, our last decade has been more about building the foundation, sort of creating this gold mine of a platform. And then we've just scratched the surface with these two products that I mentioned. But I think it has, you know, humongous potential on what it could do. And going public gives us the credibility so it's primarily for the credibility that we could that would help us open larger opportunities, even in countries that that we could take that credibility to beyond um, North America, and so so that's the I would say the first sort of big advantage when looking at us as as a public company, but also the currency which will be our financing event, like I said. So it is this is what we are excited about uh, as a company, where you know sort of we would be able to get access to some of the largest retailers uh, or banks across the globe as a result of being a public company. And it's a huge milestone, a massive event for a company to become publicly listed. Now, looking at the equity market in, in the U.S., obviously software and technology stocks have proliferated. They now account for roughly 37% of the S&P 500 so certainly as an investor evaluates the SaaS landscape, there are a myriad of stocks that they could take a look at. In your opinion, what are some of the reasons why an investor should look at NIR? Yeah, I think that's a very good question. First, we are, I would say, very, very fairly valued uh, at the based on the current market trends. And so it is an uh, opportunity that is, you know, going to grow uh, very aggressively from here because of the new ammunitions that we have in hand, and and the way we look at new ammunition is obviously the public credibility, but also some key new offerings that we are launching around our uh, from our platform. Um, we have also sort of acquired two companies in the past, so so one of the use of funds is to see how we can strengthen our inorganic path as well, especially in regions that we need to strengthen our presence or sort of, you know, the slices of data where we need to strengthen our moat. 
So I think um, a combination of this, we, we are a real company with real revenues, you know, running this for almost a decade now. So it is unlike other, I would say, a lot of other offerings that you would see, which many times is based on future growth. We are already, uh, you know, sort of at a certain milestone. And from here, I, I, you know, we see, I would say, significant growth in the next three to five years. And I think that is a journey a lot of our investors want to hop on to. And I, I would say that's probably the, the most uh, attractive piece of looking at near as a public company as well. And with this entrepreneurial journey that you've been on, third startup on the precipice of taking it public, as you reflect on that, what do you think is the number one most important attribute for an entrepreneur to have? And what are some of the key factors that have made you successful in your career? Yeah, uh, you know, from from a, a trade perspective, I would say attention to detail is is probably the most important trait I would see as, as part of you know, a successful entrepreneur, but also the ability to attract smart brains around you, you know, because I think I wouldn't have been here if it wasn't for really a lot of smart people around each function, whether it is uh, finance or tech or product or you know uh, or ops. And 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 I think I'm really, I would say, you know, blessed from that point of view where I could garner this uh, smart people around me doing you know building something so, so amazing. So I think the two traits would be attention to detail and ability to attract smart people. That's really great to hear. Now, Anil, one last question before letting you go. What time of the day do you wake up and when do you think you're most productive? Uh-huh, that's, a, that's a very uh, tricky question because we have um, offices across the globe. So, you know, we have an office in Australia, in Sydney, uh, which starts first, but uh, and we have office in Los Angeles on the other side, right? So, so it is, uh, you know, it depends on on some days of the week. But I do wake up um, pretty pretty early to start off the kick off the day uh, from the eastern part of the world, uh, and and a bit late to sort of end the day at the western part of the world. So it's um, not ideal, but um, that's become a habit kind of thing now. Yeah, it sounds like you're not allowed to get any sleep covering uh, <laughs> all parts of the world. But uh, hopefully you're well rested these days and wish you the best of luck with Thank the you. going public transaction of NIR. We'll be following the situation. It's an exciting story. And thank you for coming on the show. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Uh, thank you for having me. Thank you. All right. Thanks. Bye, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Thanks for tuning in to the Absolute Return Podcast. This episode was brought to you by Accelerate Financial Technologies. Accelerate, because performance matters. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. The views expressed in this podcast are the personal views of the participants and do not reflect the views of Accelerate. No aspect of this podcast constitutes investment, legal, or tax advice. Opinions expressed in this podcast should not be viewed as a recommendation or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell any securities or investment strategies. The information and opinions in this podcast are based on current market conditions and may fluctuate and change in the future. No representation or warranty, expressed or implied, is made on behalf of Accelerate. As to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this podcast. Accelerate does not accept any liability for any direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage suffered by any person as a result of relying on all or any part of this podcast, and any liability is expressly disclaimed.